Um, we've learned an incredible amount about this virus and how it spreads and how it affects people in an extremely short time, the prop, which is a really, really good thing. And I think that people are quite impressed by that and, and it will have long-lasting effects. The problem is there's so much conflicting information out there that it's really difficult for most people to know what they can trust and what they can't. Welcome back to the Show Me Futures podcast series brought to you by the University of Missouri Office of Student Engagement. My name is Mickey Hodel and I am here today with co-host Dr. Christy Wilson-Bowers, a medical historian at the University of Missouri's Department of History. We will be your co-hosts on this podcast discussing how COVID-19 is affecting research here at the university. We also have two guests joining us today. Our first guest is Dr. Lisa Satinspiel. Dr. Satinspiel is a professor in the Chair of Anthropology at the University of Missouri. Her research focuses on disease ecology and transmission of infectious diseases. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Satinspiel. Thank you. Our second guest is Dr. Henry Wan. Dr. Wan is an influenza virologist at the University of Missouri in the departments of molecular microbiology and immunology, veterinary pathobiology and electrical engineering and computer science. Dr. Wan's research focuses on zoonotic pathogens, especially influenza viruses, and his work combines benchwork with computational biology. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Wan. All right, Dr. Bowers, how about you start off our discussion by telling us a little bit about how you see the future of historical research after this pandemic? Thanks, Mickey. Um, I think research is definitely one of the things that is going to continue to change uh, after this pandemic. But in a lot of ways, historical research is going to remain the same because we depend upon um, the documents that are left behind by previous peoples. So um, one of the things that will continue, I think, is more things are being digitized so that we can access things that were originally written or um, other objects that we might use to study history. We might be able to access those um, more readily uh, via digital technology, but we're still going to depend a lot on libraries and archives and uh, a lot on uh, physical resources. I imagine, though, that research for other fields might continue to change even more. So perhaps, Dr. Satinspiel, you can talk a little bit about your kind of research and how this might be affecting it. Okay. Um, so I also study historical questions, but I'm not a historian. I'm a biological anthropologist, and I have been interested my entire career in the spread of infectious diseases and how human behaviors access uh, affect that spread. Um, I worked on several recent epidemics initially and then, oh, probably 25 years ago um, at a meeting a colleague came up to me and said, oh, I like the kind of modeling that you're doing and I think that can help with my project. And she was working on the 1918 flu in central Canadian fur trappers and so I got started looking at the 1918 flu. I combine historical research um, looking at the same kinds of archival materials, um, looking at historical death records to get the data I need on the pandemic and how people responded to it. But I also include in my research um, some uh, computer modeling of disease spread and at one point mathematical modeling and also um, information directly on what brings people into contact with one another. 
So how do you think that COVID-19 will affect your research and how you conduct research in the future, Dr. Sattenspiel? So how is it going to affect my... I don't know how much it's going to affect research, except for the fact that obviously this is a, a wonderful opportunity for me to start working with present-day disease, which I haven't done very much with. Um, I know people who work on all the pandemics and other... Not pandemics, but recent kinds of diseases, but I got involved in the 1918 flu and just focused on this 100-year-old pandemic. But now I'm going to be bringing in research on COVID-19. Um, and it's going to be fun, I think. It's, um, in many ways, it's similar. It's a similar situation to 1918 flu in that... Um, it was, it's a worldwide, that was a worldwide pandemic. This is a worldwide pandemic. They're both respiratory illnesses. And there are some interesting differences as well. Um, the 1918 flu mostly, if, uh, not mostly, but had a huge effect more than normal on people at the prime of life. This one mostly seems to be affecting elderly. Um, and so the, the, the epidemiological profile is quite different. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to compare these two, and I'm going to be looking at, um, I'm going to start a new project very, very soon on the spread of both pandemics in Missouri and look at community characteristics in 100 years ago at the county level and county characteristics at the present time and see if we can figure out whether what the similarities are or and differences between the way people lived and how that might be impacting the present pandemic and how we might build that into ways to deal with the potential risks that we see. So I'm moving from, uh, I shouldn't say I'm moving from, I'm adding to my research a lot of focus on the present day situation, which I haven't been doing for a long time. It sounds like a really interesting project, Dr. Sensville. I want to ask the same question to Dr. Wan. Um, how is COVID-19 affecting your job and your research today? Yes, actually, my lab um, has been working from that in the past uh, decades. So majority of my research has been studying influenza transmission and uh, vaccine. Uh, related uh, topic. For example, we really interested in having to do influenza surveillance to see what kind of virus strain need to be updated for vaccine and uh, why vaccine doesn't work in human and uh, how to develop better vaccines. And with this COVID-19, this have been uh, just so for this crisis, my lab have been incorporated this added additional layer of research into this uh, influenza. We do um, ask a similar questions. Basically, first question asking like, uh, what kind of co where current um, vaccine developer will be still be effect in the next uh, several seasons? Where virus become more um, pathogenic, more risk to the people, and uh, what kind of vaccine or drug will be effective? So we have been, uh, in the past several um, weeks, actually, we have been initiating a lot of projects uh, in the past, including vaccine, uh, human cohort uh, study, and also like an uh, underdrug animal study. We spent a lot of time treating animal compliance-related issue. I think we can all set them up. Now it's kind of ready to do research. As you can see, how this affect my job, this has been increased a lot of opportunity to us and a lot of challenges, apparently, you can see. On that side, logistics is being very hard. You see, my lab have been 
get essential in the past few weeks and uh, everybody stay home and the lab. Actually, then the students are very eager to be back. We really hope COVID-19 didn't go away, everybody eager to be back. That's uh, for logistics side, so. All right, thank you, Dr. Wang. All right, my next question is gonna to be to Dr. Satinspiel. Um, how do you think the public's trust in science and research will change after this pandemic? Oh, that's an interesting question. Let me see what I thought. So I, I think the public's trust, uh, I think the changes are going to be real mixed, personally. I think that science has done a very lot, a whole lot, very, very quickly. Um, we've learned an incredible amount about this virus and how it spreads and how it affects people in an extremely short time, the prop, which is a really, really good thing. And I think that people are quite impressed by that and, and it will have long lasting effects. The problem is there's so much conflicting information out there that it's really difficult for most people to know what they can trust and what they can't. And so I'm not convinced that um, the people who were distrustful, I, I'm not sure that the people who were distrustful of science are going to be more trustful because of all this mixed material. Similarly, you know, if people can see what they want, there's so much of a variety of information out there that I think people can take whatever view they already had and mold the data to what it is. I wonder though, if I can jump in and, and ask a question here. Um, I'm kind of hopeful, and I wonder what your perspective is, that um, everything that's going on now will maybe continue to engender more interest in research, if not kind of public trust necessarily, but um, the kind of increased funding and um, especially increased collaboration that we're seeing between labs and between, um, you know, people in different fields, even some of this interdisciplinary work. Um, I wonder if, if, if this will at least give a boost to more resources, more interest, and um, you know, more outreach of trying to uh, perhaps bring science to the public in new ways, like the project you were talking about focused here in Missouri. Yeah, um, I will say that the, there's been long-standing over the last maybe five years or maybe longer, um, long-standing efforts to bring more to the public. And there, I'm a, I'm a representative to the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I'm the representative from the Human Biology Association. So as part of that job, I have to go to the AAAS meetings every year. And the main meeting is, the affiliates meeting, is basically you learn all about the various things that AAAS is trying to do to do just that. And they have some major programs going that are designed to improve outreach, to bring science to the public, to try to get everybody to understand it. It's a little too soon to see how, how, how well those will work. This is not going to hurt it. This, this particular pandemic is not going to hurt any of those efforts. But I remain, you know, I'm just a skeptic when it comes to funding because I've been working in a discipline my entire night, life where it's really interesting, it's really useful, and our funding pool is minimal. And um, so it's hard to say. Dr. Wan, how about you? Increased funding, interest? Yes, maybe I back at this interesting question. I think Lisa just answered one question. 
I do believe within the, our advanced sciences, especially during the pandemic, there's one thing we clear. Almost everyone, no, nobody doubt will account for vaccine or drugs. That means they do believe the trust increase. If you talk about it during the past decades, everybody have been talking. Nowadays, if you talk, anyone is asking when vaccine be available. This is almost everyone asks the same question. I believe the public does trust science and research. They are, they are um, actually cannot wait for that. They're really looking for the results come from research and delivery. They count on science, there's no doubt. We know Dr. Fauci has been the news press release in White House. Everybody is counting on him. He's kind of hero. Everybody, that means people trust science, I feel. However, like Lisa said, there's um, the current information in the mixture thing in the internet, particularly on medias, they're very overwhelming. This gives people really hard fishing out what's true, what's not true, what's real, real. That's kind of things really I feel like um, kind of need a little bit better way to um, communicate, especially we are scientists, how to communicate, how the journalism, how to communicate to, to, to the public. This is something, a lot of work to do. Then regarding funding opportunities, yes, I think Alisa said is in general, this is the nature all happened in the past. So when something comes, yes, a lot of money come immediately. Most times, uh, when get the money, then could not, uh, either could not spend them, spend it wrongly. That's the kind of challenge. And after this go away, people easily can forget. Then pour money away. We hope this um, pandemic comes, this one will give people lessons, especially funders can help consistently support this kind of research. This kind of help we have consistently support science research this kind of um uh, you know help us to to prevent future such a thing get better prepared i think so all right i like how you mentioned the past pandemics and i guess my next question would be how have past pandemics prepared researchers and society for future pandemics well as the historian i'll say you know we 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 have uh, a lot of research that's been done on past pandemics um one of the interesting things i think uh, as Dr. Satinspiel, who works on this 1918 influenza, will probably agree with, uh, is that um, her kind of research has been really necessary because that pandemic came in the midst of a war in which we didn't have a lot of um, attention being paid, a lot of public attention and a lot of public records being kept uh, about the outbreaks of influenza uh, because the war was really taking precedence. and from a historian's perspective in the aftermath, um, there wasn't a lot of research, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to that uh, epidemic. And I think that that's been a, a good lesson to learn. Um, although we've been aware for a very long time, we've had researchers um, like Dr. Satinspiel and Dr. Wan working on uh, influenza, working on uh, various pandemics, and we've been aware of a possibility of some other big pandemic breaking out um, it has been a really long time. So um, I think it is important that we look back to some of these previous epidemics and look at uh, responses and uh, also keep in mind how much uh, technology and research has changed in the meantime. So the ways that we can approach these pandemics can be very different, um, but we can also uh, take lessons. And I'll, the, the big one I'll mention here is uh, exactly what we're doing right now, um, the sheltering in place, the uh, avoiding crowds, the uh, isolating sick individuals and, and trying to prevent the spread of disease is about as ancient a response to disease as we have. And it's, it's non-biomedical, 
Um, it's very low tech. Uh, it's not one that people are always happy with and they haven't been happy with it in the past, but it works. And so um, there's probably the biggest lesson that we can take from um, not just 1918, but um, stretching back to medieval plague epidemics and stretching back uh, even further in time than that. And I might jump in too. Um, in doing my research on the 1918 flu, I have found lots and lots and lots of sources. And there are whole books, two-inch thick books, that have been written by virologists and other people and epidemiologists on all aspects of influenza that, that were published like within a couple of years of the 1918 pandemic. Now, they didn't have all the technology we have. They didn't have all the knowledge we have. But we shouldn't forget about that work. There's, it's amazing what they knew and what they didn't know. But there are, there are lots of lessons in there if you take the time to go through those books because they did, they, they had to deal with it and they had to figure out ways to deal with this pandemic. And yeah, they could try, and they did try the, 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 the uh, self-isolation, the stay, in, stay at home kinds of things, but they did all kinds of other things as well. And, and that's a source of information that we shouldn't let just be lost in the depths of time because it's really valuable. I mean, there's stuff from plague in the 1300s that, helps us learn how to deal with present disease. So. Dr. Ren, do you have any ideas? Yeah, actually, um, I totally agree. I uh, echo here. You know, during the pandemic comes, uh, we ask the same questions. Yeah, a thousand years ago, 100 years ago, 100 years ago, we ask the same question, how to reduce mortality, morbidity for populations, which are how to remove the transmission, um, block transmission, same questions. So I, those historical information is so critical for us. Um, typical people easily forgot. We hope um, very important to learn from past, uh, compare them. Even um, one, one thing is here is um, how we can balance now we question back, especially we are trying to back to work now. Uh, it's very important for economically. We are learn from past. Those lessons, even to the non-H1N1 pandemic, that's information how, for example, people talk about blocker country, usually it's not delayed flattening curve. Same term we're asking, how this could be useful for now and today, pandemic, we're facing the same problem. How we can learn from current and can help the future. I think all this is important, I think. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Wang. All right, my next question kind of focuses on the role of current technology during our pandemic and in the future. And so to Dr. Satinspiel, how do you see the future pandemic modeling changing in the future? Because I know you do a lot of modeling and modeling research. So this has been an interesting experience for me, this whole pandemic, because very, very, very early on in the pandemic, my main research technique for the first time ever, I think, came out front and center. Actually, it's probably not the first time. There was a foot and mouth epidemic in England where modeling was really important. But most of the time, modeling of epidemics has sort of taken a back seat to lots of other things. And it was brought out very, very early. And it was, it was extremely influential, especially in the early days. It still continues to have a major influence on policy decisions that are being made. 
But I think what it's done is what, what's happened with this pandemic is that there's been clear illustrations of both the use and the misuse of models. Um, it's just wonderful to see the modeling work being recognized because there's a lot of really good work out there that people have been doing for, I don't know, 50 years or more. And, and it hasn't been very much recognized even within the epidemiological community. It's being more and more recognized, and I, and I think that's a good thing. But I think what we're, going, what we're seeing needs to be done with this pandemic, and the modelers need to see this as well as everybody else, that we need to pay a lot more attention to quality control. We need to learn to be totally transparent about the assumptions that are being made and how they influence the outcomes of the models. And we need to carefully keep the presentation of results within the bounds of what is reasonable, given those assumptions. So I don't know how many early on there were something like 50 models out there, and most of them had just terrible assumptions, but that was being lost. And then some of the modelers started making, writing really persuasive and good articles about how important these assumptions are. And the other thing I think that the modeling has done is that it is clearly, or the pandemic, um, the pandemic experience has clearly illustrated how difficult it is to predict what's going to happen in the future, even if you spend really careful attention on how a model is structured and how it's set up. A model is only a model, and a model is not the final answer. And I think that, that there's been plenty of illustrations of this fact and plenty of misdirections, I wouldn't say wrong directions, but misdirections that have occurred because too much uncritical faith has been placed in the results of the models. Um, so I think it's a wonderful thing. I think it's going to change. I think it's opening everybody's eyes to the value of modeling, and that was something that has been moving slowly, and this is going to give it a big boost. And, you know, personally, I think it's a great technique. But at the same time, um, it's shown the limitations. And we have to step back and think, okay, there are serious limitations here, which, every, which people have recognized. What people haven't recognized is that other methods have the same kinds of limitations, and we need to, dwell, we need to take a balanced view. And I think maybe it's also shown us how important, going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, outreach, um, translation. Uh, so people who are able to, and there, there are a lot of really good science journalists, for example, or, or other people, uh, academics themselves, who are able to explain kind of what you've just explained, right? It's not just about the results. It's not just the endpoint. It's how do you get there? And then, you know, what are the factors that are affecting this? I think from my perspective, I've become much more uh, aware, um, which I, I hadn't really as much in historical research, of uh, how much these variables of what we do and how we act change those models, right? It changes every day depending on how we're actually, you know, what we're actually doing. So um, I think being, you know, having that more um, education, awareness, sort of translating that to people um, is also really going to be important going forward. I agree. And, you know, there are some really effective ways. The, we all, you know, sort of, it's almost a truism now, flatten the curve. That's a modeling result. It was somebody who, I don't remember who it was that made the original diagram, but it was a very potent illustration 
of a basic modeling result. In the early days of the AIDS epidemic, when people were first starting to uh, know about the disease, I was involved in some research, some modeling research, and we showed, among others, but we were one of the primary groups, I was working with a group at Michigan, and um, we showed very clearly using models that one of the critical questions for that disease is who mixes with whom. And it has since gone to lots of other diseases, and now it's almost standard to use that in disease models. But that's a relatively new phenomenon from the mid-80s and later. And before that, everybody just kind of assumed that all the people involved were equal, and they're not. And it matters what group you're in and who else you interact with. Those are really critical factors. It's a really interesting response, Dr. Sanspiel. Dr. Wang, I also know you use a lot of new technology to do your research. So what do you think the role of computational biology will be in this pandemic and into the future? Yes, actually, computational biology has been very, um, actually, this come along with uh, modeling uh, researchers talked. So computational biology, for example, quick questions, people keep asking where the virus come from. Uh, what the, this is the first immediately uh, application do sequencing comparison, then now come from bat, maybe even other intermediate health, so very critical. Second question is which vaccine should be best, what type of vaccine should be used? Then we use computational biology to identify gene target to do the vaccine development. The third one, what kind of drug be used? Can current um, FDA approved drug can be reused, repurposed to be used? Or we should design new drug. Then we do protein modeling to get new drugs. All these sort of questions that can be used. Another one, and for example, what can immune response could uh, determine pathogenesis? or linked to epidemiology analysis, they can use omic, like um, genomic, the proteomics, or different thing analysis, uh, use uh, machine learning to identify. Then the other question to ask, what kind of virus can uh, come back again, re-emerge, re emerge we can use uh, computer biology to predict future. Anyway, also I'll give a lot of examples to talk about computational biology. We feel computational biology is definitely very important for this pandemic and be for future. In the past, they have been used a lot for influenza until the non pandemic and have been used even 1918 pandemic. We used computational biology to link all how 1918 pandemic affecting all current in the past 100 years uh, emergency other um, pandemic or season influenza virus have been used. I think computational biology will be an uh, important current one and also definitely be a more and more important role on, uh, in the future as well. Uh, with some more information we do and uh, um, I think what we know and uh, I think it's been very critical. So. Great. Thank you, Dr. Wan. All right, our last question today will be, what is one hope regarding research you have for listeners who worry about the future? So I will start off and say that I am going to interpret this question, that I'm very hopeful about research in the future. Um, I think that, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the positive things that we can say about this pandemic is the overall public awareness that we have. I mean, it has touched all of us. And so I think everybody is much more aware of the importance of all kinds of research. So obviously the scientific research, um, but things like psychological research, humanities research, there are so many ways that 
Uh, we can draw on so many different kinds of knowledge banks to help everybody, not just in terms of the biomedical um, uh, aspect of trying to um, defeat this virus, um, but also how we all live, um, how we interact, how we um, can get through this, how we can cope with this, uh, strategies we can use for getting life um, back out of our houses, you know, in, in different fashions and being able to interact once again. So um, I, I think everybody is aware of the importance of all of these things now. So I am very hopeful that we are going to have um, continued efforts from lots of different researchers and lots of different fields that are going to be helpful for everyone. I, I totally agree. You're starting to sound like an anthropologist. But <laughs> uh, no, but, but one of the things that anthropologists have known and that most people, if you tell them, they say, oh, yeah, I, I realize that, but they probably don't. Um, one of the major characteristics of humans is that they are unbelievable problem solvers. That is really distinct for humans in comparison to almost all other animals. Although I must admit I have a cat who has been able to catch lizards that come into the house and she'll sit there for hours right where they come in. But you know, that's a different thing. But humans are really, really good problem solvers. And we will make it through this pandemic stronger and more knowledgeable about how things are happening. Um, there's no question that we have made lots of mistakes in dealing with this pandemic all over the world, everywhere we live. Uh, but I think, as is true of all human life, dealing with mistakes always makes you stronger and better able to deal with the next thing that comes along. And I think that we are learning a lot right now about how to deal with various um, outbreaks, various problems that we have, and, and we're gonna, that's going to keep us in good stead for the future. Dr. Wan, do you have any hope? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I think uh, I totally agree um, with uh, Christian and Lisa, and uh, I, I am pretty, pretty optimistic for this one. And uh, actually, I, actually, the public, I don't think uh, people are really able to show how confident this will go over just sooner or later, actually pretty soon, actually. Even if through this pandemic, we have been long how virus was transmitted, for example, we now we have to deal with it. Then along the line, a lot of progress of due the vaccine, a lot of progress for the drug. Now you see more, uh, we understand uh, uh, in um, anxiety in the earlier pandemic happened. Along the line, we begin to know more about disease and uh, we'll be able to overcome it. I think uh, we we understand the worry, but actually don't need really be we'll just take time so I think we'll get this over so all right thank you Dr. Ran I'm going to thank Dr. Bowers for co-hosting with me today and I'm going to thank Dr. Satinspiel and Dr. Ran for being on the show today and that is all we have <laughs> all right thank you <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Show Me Futures podcast series. This podcast is produced by students in partnership with the University of Missouri Office of Student Engagement. Our editing is done by Hope Davis and James Kim, and the music is by DJ Williams. We'd like to say thank you again to our panelists for their time and insights. If you'd like to see more from them, you can check out the links in our description. Wherever you're listening, we hope you stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you.